This morning, we are continuing uh, our series, our seven-week series entitled By Faith, By Faith. And the reason why we have entitled this series By Faith is because what we are doing in this series is we are going verse by verse and section by section. Yeah, I hear an echo, guys. Okay, I hear, we're going verse by verse and section by section through Hebrews chapter 11. Now, for those of you who are new to the Bible, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the faith chapter, the faith chapter. And the reason why Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the faith chapter is because in Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews, he begins the chapter with a very comprehensive and thorough definition of faith. After he gives that definition, what he proceeds to do then for the rest of the chapter is he gives us examples from the Old Testament of people who displayed that biblical faith. And so this morning, we are in the fifth installment of this series, and we are going to be looking at the life and the faith of Moses, okay? We're going to be looking at the life and the faith of Moses. And so the passage that we are going to be looking at and reading this morning uh, comes from Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at verses 23 through 29. So Hebrews 11, verses 23 through 29. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be here on the screen behind me, okay? But one of the things that we do here at our church is when we read from God's Word is we have people stand. So if you can please stand for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 23 through 29. Here's what it says. It says, By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born, but because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He, Moses, regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value, everyone say greater value, than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Everyone say invisible. invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. It's the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and it's so good to be back uh, with my family, and it's so good to be back with Tri-Village Church. And Father, I pray now uh, that, that from, from the moment I say amen, Lord, that I would speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. Lord, we believe in light of Scripture that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. And so I pray, Lord, that you would use that authority to speak now to your people in a very specific way. And we ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people say, amen. amen. You may be seated. All right, so this morning, uh, like I said, we are continuing this series uh, entitled By Faith, and we are in the fifth installment of it, and we are going to be looking at the life and the faith of Moses. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the life and faith of Moses under three headings. There are three things that we learn about faith when we look at it through the lens of Moses' life. The first thing we learn is that true faith relies on God. The second thing we learn is that true faith waits on God. And then the third thing we learn is that true faith points to God, okay? So faith relies, faith waits, and faith points, okay? 
So this morning, we're going to begin with the first truth, the first lesson, which is faith relies. Now, here's what I mean by faith relies. One of the things that you see when you study uh, the life and the faith of Moses is that multiple times in the life of Moses, God is trying to force Moses to move from self-reliance to God-reliance. He does it again and again and again. He continually puts Moses in places where he has to go from self-reliance to God-reliance. And one of the clearest examples of that is actually found in Exodus 3 and Exodus 4. At the end of Exodus 3 and the beginning of Exodus 4, it's when God shows up to Moses. By this time, Moses is already in the wilderness. He's already ran away from Egypt, right? God shows up to Moses, and what God wants to do is he's trying to tell Moses, convince Moses that he is going to be the deliverer of his people, okay? So God and Moses are having this discussion. So at the end of chapter 3 is when God shows up in the burning bush. He says, Moses, Moses, right? And Moses has no idea where the sound's coming from. He figures out that it's coming from a bush, and God's presence is in a bush. God tells him to take his shoes off because he's on holy ground. And then God informs him, uh, hey, listen, you are going to be my deliverer. You are going to be the mediator of the new covenant that I am creating with, with Israel, okay? Then Moses responds with, what do I say when people ask who you are? When people ask me who you are, what am I going to say? And at the end of chapter 3, God says, tell them, I am who I am sent you. Now, the reason why that's important is because it's the first time in Scripture that God reveals his proper name. God's name is not God. God's name is I am who I am. Or another way to put it is Yahweh. It's the first time in Scripture that God reveals his proper name to an individual. Okay? Then, if you look at the end of chapter 3, of Exodus 3, it's, it's, it's crazy because essentially what God does is, in about a paragraph, he summarizes everything that he's about to do in Egypt. He literally gives uh, Moses a summary of what he's about to do. So you would think, after God reveals his identity, you would think after God lays out the plan for him, right, you would think that Moses would say, all right, I'll go. That's all I needed, God. Thanks. You know, now that I know who you are, now that I know what you will do, send me, I'll go. But that's not what Moses says, okay? Look what it says at the beginning of chapter 4 of Exodus. It says, Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you, okay? Now, let me pause there for a second. So again, Moses, again, what if, not me, okay? So then what God does, I'm going to skip from verse 1 all the way to verse 10 because essentially what God does for the next 8 to 9 verses is God gives him three signs. He says, look, your staff will become a snake, your hand will become leprous, and the water of the Nile will become blood. God gives him three signs that will take place when he gets there. And you would think, oh, well, that's, that's pretty good for him, right? That is finally what convinces Moses, right? No, look what Moses says in verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Then it says, the Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. And Moses again, in verse 13, for the fourth time, says, pardon your servant, Lord. He should have just stopped right there. Pardon me for being such an idiot, but that's not what he says. He says, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Okay? 
So here's what I need you to see. As we look at the life of Moses, one of the things that God does again and again and again is he puts Moses in positions where he can't rely on himself, but he can only rely on God. But, but here's what's so fascinating, though. Moses takes every opportunity he gets. He, 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 from every angle that God approaches him, Moses goes out of his way to say, I'm not the guy. He comes up with every excuse in the book. And I would argue, okay, now what you would think is that the reason why Moses is doing this is because Moses lacks faith, right? Moses can't do what God's saying because Moses has a small faith. But I would argue that the problem with Moses is not the size of his faith, it's the source of his faith, okay? The the problem with, with, with Moses is not the degree of his faith, it's the direction of his faith. You see, because Moses' faith is not ultimately in God, Moses' faith is in himself. Here's how I know. Because in every time Moses responds to God, the only person he's talking about is me and I, I and me, me and I, I and me. So the problem with Moses is not the size of his faith. The problem with Moses is the source of it. It's not the degree of his faith, it's the direction of his faith. His faith is not actually in God. His faith is actually in himself, okay? So here's what I would argue. And a lot of people don't perceive this passage in this way. But I would argue that what Moses is actually struggling with in this passage is he is struggling with very intense pride and arrogance. Moses in this passage is being extremely prideful and extremely arrogant. Now, you might be sitting here and you're thinking, well, I don't agree with that. I don't don't think that's true. Because if you look at the language that Moses uses, clearly he's humble. Clearly he's saying, I'm not the guy, send someone else. That sounds like the most humble thing a person can say. But actually, it's not humility. It's a very insidious form of pride. And here's how I can prove it to you. C.S. Lewis, who's one of my favorite authors, he writes in one of his books that there are actually two forms of pride. One form of pride is the pride that we all think of. And then there's a, a shadow side. There's this insidious form of pride that a lot of us don't actually consider pride. He says that the first type of pride that many of us think of is the, in, the superiority form of pride. And I'll explain that one in a second. He says the second form of pride is the inferiority form of pride. And here's how Lewis defines pride. He says that pride is the focus on and the worship of self. That's all pride is. Pride is the focus on and the worship of the self. Okay? So, in light of that definition, what we see is that there can actually be two forms of pride. If all pride is, is the focus on and the worship of self, you can do that and come up with two different conclusions. So the first type of pride, which is the pride we usually think of, is the superiority form of pride. Those are the people who are focusing on and worshiping themselves, and when they look at the world, they use themselves as the filter by which they evaluate everything. But by and large, when they do the math, they almost always end up at the top of the heap. Every time they compare themselves, they're like, yeah, I'm I'm better than that person, and I'm better than that person, and I'm actually much better than that person too. See, that's, that's the first type of pride. The type of pride that we tend to think of. That person evaluates the world through the lens of of themselves, and they almost always, after doing the math, end up on top. But if that's actually pride, if pride is the worship of self, then you can actually be on the other side of the spectrum and still be just as prideful. Because the inferiority form of pride is the person that looks out into the world 
And every time they compare themselves, every time they do the math, they always end up at the bottom. And I'm not good enough, and I don't have enough, and I wish I had that spouse, and I wish I had that job, and I wish I had that house, and I wish I could go on that vacation. But it's still all about them. The only difference is that when they do the math, they always end up on the bottom. But it's still just as prideful and just as self-centered as the first form of pride. Lewis says that both forms of pride are dangerous, but he would argue that the, the, the inferiority one is a little bit more insidious and more dangerous because people don't actually call that pride. On the surface, it looks like humility, but it's actually extreme arrogance. Okay? Moses, in this passage, is struggling with the inferiority form of pride. Moses' faith, follow me here, is not ultimately in God. His faith is in himself. Listen to this. The greatest barrier to Moses' God-reliance is his own self-reliance. The thing that's keeping him from a God-reliant faith is his self-reliant faith. The size of Moses' faith is the size of Moses. That's why he can't see himself doing it, because his faith isn't in God. His faith is in himself. So how can I do something like that? It's all about me. Now, here's what's so interesting, though. There are two other places in the Bible, in Moses' story, where he struggles with the other form of pride. So here, he's struggling with the inferiority form. But then when you look at Exodus 2 and Numbers 20, you see Moses struggling with the other form. In Exodus chapter 2, Moses is a young prince, and he sees this Egyptian uh, hurting and beating on an Israelite. He knows that he's part of God's deliverance plan, and so he takes it on himself to do something about the issue. He ends up killing the man and burying him. And in that moment, what he's actually doing is he's putting himself in the place of God. And so in that moment, he's actually struggling with the other form of pride. His faith is still in himself, but he's doing it the other way now. Then in Numbers chapter 20, which is towards the end of his life, God tells Moses, I need you to speak to the rock so that water can come out of this rock. Moses, instead of speaking to the rock, he, in anger and arrogance, strikes the rock twice and God ends up punishing him, and that's actually what keeps him from going into the promised land. And so what we see is in the, in the life of Moses, his pride, his arrogance, his self-reliance hinders his ministry at the beginning, and it ends up halting his ministry at the end. Okay? So, so the first lesson that we can learn from the life of Moses is that true biblical faith relies not on self, but on God. It relies on God. Guys, listen. The greatest barrier to your God-reliance is your self-reliance. It's the greatest barrier. Now, you might be here this morning and you struggle with the superiority form of pride. You think you're just better than everybody. Or you're sitting here this morning and you're struggling with the inferiority form of pride. You think you're worse than everybody. Neither of those are true. You're not better than everybody. You're not worse than everybody. But you might be sitting here, and the thing that might be keeping you, listen to this, the thing that might be keeping you from doing what God wants you to do is not the size of your faith, it's the source of your faith. It's not the degree of your faith, it's the direction of your faith. Because your faith isn't actually in God, your faith is actually in you. And so what seems like low faith is actually just low self-esteem. I'm going to say that again. 
what seems like low faith is actually just low self-esteem. That's why we tend to struggle with faith in the areas where we are least capable. In the areas where I can't manage, in the areas where it's hard for me to handle, in the areas that I'm not as gifted in, that's where I struggle with my faith. Why? Because in the areas that I'm good at, I don't really need God. I have faith in myself. And so what's low faith is actually just low self-esteem. The reason why your faith goes up and down is not because you're changing your view of God, it's because you're changing your view of yourself, depending on the area that you're in. Guys, here's the problem, though. The problem with placing your faith in yourself is that then your faith becomes limited to yourself. You become a ceiling on your faith. And so when God calls you to do something, you're like, I can't do that because your faith isn't actually in God. The size of your faith is not the size of God. The size of your faith is the size of your ability and your resources and your experiences and your resume. And so you don't do what God is calling you to do because your faith really isn't in God. Your faith is in yourself. The greatest barrier to God-reliance is self-reliance. So here's, here's some of the questions that I want you to ask yourself this morning. What is your faith in this morning? Is your faith in God or is it in yourself? Let me ask you another question. If it's true that the size of your faith is determined by the source of your faith, then what size is your faith this morning? How big is your faith this morning? Is your faith the size of God or is your faith the size of your bank account? Or is your faith the size of your retirement? Or is the faith the size of your health and wellness? Or is the faith your size of your, your resume or your personality? How big is your faith this morning? If it's not as big as God, then it's because it's not in God. So, the first truth that we learn here uh, in the life and story of Moses is that true faith relies on God. The second truth that we learn here this morning is that true faith doesn't just rely on God, but true faith also waits on God. True faith waits on God. Now, what do I mean by faith waits on God? Now, one of the things that stood out to me this week as I was studying the life of Moses is that when you look at the life of Moses, it's such an interesting, captivating story that you can actually read right past it. You start reading and reading and reading, and before you know it, the story is over, right? But here's what's so fascinating. Because the story is so fast-paced and because things seem to move so quickly, you can actually underestimate how much time is actually passing in the story. It, what seems like a few days or a few months is actually a few decades. And, and what I would argue is that the best way to measure the life of Moses is not in days, but in decades. Okay? So, so let me give you a, a quick summary of the life of Moses, right? Moses is born in Egypt as an Israelite. During the time that he's born, there's a Pharaoh who does not like the Israelites and is trying to wipe them out. They have become a threat, and he is trying to wipe them out. Okay? 
Moses is born. His parents see that there's something special about him, and so they protect him. The midwives don't kill him. He's protected by his parents until they can no longer have him in the house. Then they put him in a basket. They sent him down the Nile River. By God's sovereignty, he is seen by Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter picks him up out of the basket. That's why his name is Moses, because Moses means to take out of or pull out of, right? So, so, so his name is Moses because what she does is take him out of the basket, and she adopts him as her so Moses then, from then on, he has these two realities. He, he, he is this Israelite slave on the one hand and an Egyptian prince on the other. So then we fast forward in what seems to be just a few years, maybe even just a few months, and we get to the point where Moses is in the palace. He looks out and he sees an Egyptian official abusing an Israelite slave. He gets angry. He goes out. He murders him. He buries him. The next day, he finds out that it's starting to get out, and so he escapes. Now, you would think that Moses is maybe in his late teens, early 20s when that happens. Moses was already 40 years old when this happens. For 40 years, Moses lived in the house of Pharaoh, in the palace, 40 years. So then he runs away to Midian, and he becomes a shepherd, the Bible says. Then, because of the, Bible, the way the Bible is written, it feels like only a few months go by, And then God shows up and says, hey, I need you to go back and lead my people out of Israel. But it wasn't a few months. It wasn't even a few years. It was 40 years later. Moses is a shepherd in Midian for 40 years. Okay? So God shows up, says, I need you to go back and deliver my people. Now, I can't prove this, right? Don't call me a heretic, but, but I, I'm convinced that if Moses was 80 years old when he headed back to Egypt, there's a good chance that he went back to Egypt in a Lincoln town car with his blinker on the whole time. <laughs> there's a good chance. He gets back to Egypt. When he gets to Egypt, he starts the whole me versus Pharaoh thing, right? Then he delivers the people. They go out into the wilderness They start to wander in the wilderness because of their sin, and then Moses dies, and you think, okay, a few years went by. No, another 40 years goes by, and Moses dies at 120. 40 years every single time. So what I need you to see, the reason why I bring all this up is because I need you to see that God works at a different pace than we do. God's on a different timeline, in a time zone than we are. He takes Moses not the fastest route, but the most fruitful route, okay? He goes the long way around. But here's the thing. It's not just true with Moses. It's actually true with Israel too. Think about it. God could have easily delivered Israel the first time when Moses kills the Egyptian. They could have started an insurgency, and they could have all gotten out the first time. No, God makes them wait another four decades, another 40 years before he finally delivers them. Then once he finally delivers him, delivers them, God then, it says in the passage, I'm going to read it to you in a second, in Exodus 13, that God didn't take him the shortest route. He goes the longer route. Look, Look what it says in Exodus 13. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was what? Shorter. For God said, If they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. 
So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Dead Sea. And the Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. So what we see both in the life of Moses and in the life of the Israelites is that God doesn't always go the fastest route, but he always goes the most fruitful route. Okay? That's very important for us to know. See, see, God isn't just worried about where Moses is going. He's worried about who Moses is becoming. Somebody missed that. The reason why God goes the longer route is because God isn't just worried about where Moses is going. He's worried about who Moses is becoming. Listen, God isn't just worried about his destination. God is worried about his disposition. God isn't just worried about where he's headed. God is worried about his heart. And so he goes the longer route with both Moses and Egypt because God is up to something. He's doing more than just moving you. God's in the business of of transformation by aviation. So as he sends you somewhere, he's doing something in you. So when you get there, you're ready for what he has for you. Okay? That's what we see in the life of Moses. And he takes 40 years every single time. 40 years to work in the life of Moses. There's this quote that I have for you. It's from a man named Peter Lewis. And here's what he says in his book on Hebrews chapter 11. He says, listen to this, Moses had to learn to be a servant, not a master. A prophet, not a prince. The friend of God, not a pharaoh. And so this is this, so God stripped him of his advantages and began his apprenticeship in spiritual leadership. Then it says, Moses spent his first 40 years becoming a somebody, then his second 40 years becoming a nobody, and then God could use him. It was an apprenticeship in faith. Do you know why Moses spent so much time with dumb Stubborn sheep. Because God was preparing him for dumb, stubborn sheep. That's why. And so we see that God is more worried about his disposition than he is about his destination. God is more worried about who he's becoming than he is about where he is going. And listen, the same thing that's true of them, of Moses and Israel, is also true of us. Listen, the reason why true faith waits on God is because true faith places their faith in God and knows, God, you're not just worried about where I'm going. You're worried about who I am when I get there. And that takes time. Okay? Listen, there's two reasons, and there's many, but I'm only going to give you two. There are two reasons why God tends to take longer than what we think he should. Okay? The first reason is because God's trying to trans to because God's trying to inform your head. And the second reason is because God's trying to transform your heart. So your head and your heart. The first reason why God takes as long as he takes is because God is trying to inform your head, your mind, your thoughts. Here's what I mean. A lot of us might not realize this, but when we think of spiritual growth and when we think of seasons of waiting, our view of those things are much more worldly than they are biblical. Our view of those things are much more cultural than they are theological. So because we are Westerners, all we think about is efficiency. All we think about is production. 
All we think about is getting things done as quickly as possible. And if we're not careful, what starts to happen is we start to expect those very things from our faith. And so we go to our faith and we expect things to happen quickly and efficiently and be as productive as possible. The problem is that is not how God works. See, a lot of us, what we want is we want light switch spiritual growth. Here's what I mean by light switch growth. Let's say that, that you're, you're, learning, you're working on generosity. You go to this room in your house, it's a generosity room, and then I, learned, I heard a sermon on generosity, so I, I, the, the light was off, now it's on, and I'm done. I never have to think about generosity again. God does not work that way. God is not a light switch God. God is a dimmer switch God. You know how a dimmer switch works, right? Slowly. Slowly. The light comes on slowly. Because God isn't just trying to get you somewhere. God is trying to do something in you. So we want a light switch. God uses a dimmer switch. We want a microwave. God uses a crock pot. <laughs> we want to just hit the 30 seconds. Beep. Done. Doesn't taste that great, but hey, I'm done. God's a crock pot God. Puts you in there and lets you sit. You know why? Because for God, a waiting season is not a wasted season. For us, waiting is wasted. But for God, a waiting season is never, ever, ever, ever a wasted season. So God does it to change how you think. God wants you to start to think the way he thinks. God wants you to get to a place where you're like, you know, no, the destination is important, but my disposition is even more important. Where I'm going is important, but who I'm becoming is even more important. He starts to change how you think. You start to realize that God is just as focused on where, you at, at where your heart is than where you are headed. And when you start thinking the way God thinks, listen, those times of waiting become easier and more fruitful. And you become a better steward of them. And you end up coming out a better person than you were before you got into it. But you know the second reason why God makes us wait? It's not just to inform our heads, but it's also to transform our hearts. And I would argue that this second reason is, is way harder than the first reason. Because I believe that reasons for the mind or for the head are way easier than real estate in the heart. Principles for your head are way easier than property in your heart. So changing and transforming your heart is the harder part. Here's why I believe, in light of Scripture, and even in light of this passage, that God makes us wait. God wants to change your heart, because here's what happens to us. If we're not careful, one of the things that happens is we, in our, in our time of waiting, especially if the waiting takes longer than what we expected, we start to make whatever we're waiting for God. And we start to think that if I get that thing... I will finally be satisfied. I will finally be happy. I will finally be content. And whatever that thing is, maybe you're waiting for a job offer. Maybe you're waiting on a test result. Maybe you're waiting to graduate. Maybe you're looking for a spouse. Maybe you're looking forward to retirement. I don't know what it is that you're waiting for, but what I can tell you is this. Part of the reason why God is making you wait is because God wants you to get to a place where you realize, where you can say, even if I never have that, I'll be okay. God wants you to see that what you have is already what you need. 
Think about it, think about this, okay? Follow with me here. What makes the promised land the promised land, right? The, the Israelites are in the wilderness. They're wandering and they're wandering and they're wandering. What makes the promised land the promised land is not its topography, is not its boundaries, is not its beautiful landscape. What makes the promised land the promised land is that God is there. But, but, but get this. If that's what makes the promised land the promised land, then there's no difference from the promised land to the wilderness because God is there too. You see, God is in the wilderness as a pillar of smoke and as a pillar of fire. He's leading them day by day. He's with them. And so if what makes the promised land the promised land God is God, then we already have everything we need. And if you're not careful, you can start expecting from the promised land something that you already have in Jesus. And you know what happens when you do that? You get whatever it is you thought you needed, and you're still just as empty and you're still just as unsatisfied. What I call it is, I call it next stage idols. Next stage idolatry. So you talk to a single person, and they're convinced, man, when I get a girlfriend or a boyfriend, everything's going to be great. And then you talk to that person who's dating, and then they're convinced, man, when I get married, everything's going to be great. And then, and then you talk to them uh, when they're married, and they're convinced that when I have a kid, everything's going to be great. And then when, when they have a kid, they're, 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 when, I have, when they, my kids leave the house, everything's going to be great. And so on and so forth. But it's always the next thing. And they're never satisfied. And you see it in the life of Israel, right? Think about it, think about it. Think about how long Israel was in the season of waiting to get out of Egypt. Israel was in Egypt for 400 years. That's longer than we've been around as a nation. Okay? 400 years. All they're waiting for is for God to get them out. God shows up and gets them out in the most extraordinary way you could ever imagine. The plagues and the sea and all these crazy things happen. And you would think, man, after God shows up like that, these people should never complain again. These people, find, all they ever daydreamed about was not being a slave in Egypt. And what am I going to do if I have my own time and my own freedom and my own, everything's going to be great. Then they get into the wilderness and within a few days they're complaining again. You know why? Because it was new circumstances, but the same people. New circumstances, same exact people. New habitat, same heart. That's how ridiculous this is. That's exactly how we are. We, we finally get the thing that we thought we needed, and nothing changes. Whether it's a new job or a higher salary, or your prodigal coming home, or a clear test result, or, or, or a fiancé, whatever it is you're waiting for. You get it? Nothing changes. It's a new circumstance, same you. New year, same you. People will say, new year, new me. No, 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 no. <laughs> new year, same you. That's the problem. I, I actually have seen this in my own life. I, when Lily and I first got married, we were broke. Right? We were broke, broke. And I remember I was working my, my part-time job at Chick-fil-A and going to seminary and trying to figure it all out. And all I essentially was doing was getting into debt and gaining a bunch of weight. And so, uh, I, but, but I always thought myself, I told myself, I, I can't wait until I have this much salary. Man, when I, when I get a full-time job, everything's going to be different. Then I got that job. Nothing changed. And I thought, oh, I just need a little, little bit more salary. Just, if God just gives me just a little bit more money, just a little bit higher salary, we'll be good. 
I got that. And we weren't good. New circumstance, same person. Listen, if you were to tell me, and I don't even make that much money right now, but if you were to tell me at 24, you're going to make this much money at 33, I'd be like, oh, man, I would never complain about anything ever again. (laughs) And you know what I'm doing? Still complaining. (laughs) And you know what the Lord revealed to me this week? What I have is not a salary problem. What I have is a sin problem. And Jesus and God, they're not here to fix your salary problem. They're here to deal with your sin problem. God wants you to know that he's enough. And that regardless of what you're waiting for, if you get that without him, it's not going to satisfy you. Amen? So here's the, question that I want, here's the questions that I want you to ask yourself as you think about this idea of faith waits on God. Ask yourself, how well am I currently stewarding this season of waiting? Like if you were to rate yourself, how well are you currently stewarding this season of waiting? Ask yourself, here's a great question. Is what I am waiting for even something God has for me? Have you ever asked that question? Sometimes I've been in a season of waiting for so long, and I get to the end of it, and God's changed me so much that the thing I was waiting for, I don't even want anymore. Is the thing you're waiting for what God even has for you? And the third question is this. In what ways is God trying to inform my mind and transform my heart? It's fascinating because in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses, he, he, I, don't, I didn't have time to quote it this morning, but in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses, he looks back at what happened uh, in the longer, with the longer road, right? They go the longer way. And he looks back in Deuteronomy 8. You should read at the beginning of Deuteronomy 8. And he says, God took us the longer road. As Moses says, God took us the longer road to see what was in our hearts and our minds. That's what he says. And I, I, and I looked at it in the Amplified Version because the Amplified Version gives you what the, the Greek words, the Hebrew words can actually also mean. And in the Amplified Version it says, God took us the longer way in order for him to discover what was in our heads and in our minds. The same reason God did it to them is the same reason why God does it to you. So ask yourself, what is in my head and what is in my heart? That's the question God wants you to ask. So the first thing we see in the life of Moses is that faith relies on God. The second thing we see in the life of Moses is that faith waits on God. And then last but not least, the third thing we see in the life of Moses is that faith points to God. True faith points to God. Now, what do I mean by points to God? Here's what I mean, that when you look at this story, let me put it this, if we were to stop the sermon right now and only end the sermon after the first two sermons, of the first two points, then all we would have is the Old Testament and Moses, okay? Now, the reason why we can't stop there is because when you look at the way the Bible is written, The reason why we know that that wasn't the end of the story is because if it would have been the end of the story, God would have ended the Bible at the end of Exodus. But God doesn't end the Bible at the end of Exodus. And so what we see when we look at it from that angle is that the first Moses and the first Israelites and the first Exodus and the first promised land weren't enough. And we know they weren't enough because the story doesn't end there. We are pointed to something else. We are pointed 
to a greater story. We are pointed to a greater person. Listen, let me put it like this. True biblical gospel-centered faith will continually point you to a greater Moses who was a greater deliverer and a greater mediator of a greater covenant who came to provide a greater exodus from a greater enemy in order to get you into a greater promised land. That's what this story is really about. That's what this story actually points to. And, 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 and just in case you're not tracking with me, and just in case you're not picking up what I'm setting down, let me, let me put it in layman's terms, okay? The greater Moses, the greater deliverer, the greater rescuer, the greater mediator is the Lord Jesus Christ. This story is about Jesus. Listen, the longer you walk with God by faith, the longer you walk with God by faith, the more your faith should be relying on, waiting on, and pointing to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what we see. That this story in particular and the Exodus narrative in general point us to a greater person and a greater story. And that person is Jesus. I'm going to show you three ways in which Jesus is the fulfillment of this passage. In which the, in, um, three ways in which this passage points to Jesus. In, in other words, our faith should also point to Jesus. Okay, so, so three ways. Jesus is the greater Moses. He's also the greater Israel. And he's also the greater Passover lamb, which is brought up in the passage. So the greater Moses, the greater Israel, the greater Passover lamb. The first thing we see is that Jesus is the greater Moses. Listen, the first Moses left a palace. Jesus left a greater palace. The, the first Moses was rejected by his people. Jesus was rejected by his people and for his people. The greater, the first, the, the, the Moses shows up, right? And, and what he does is when Moses shows up, he brings temporary bread from heaven. Jesus shows up and brings eternal bread from heaven. Moses brings God's law down from Mount Sinai. Jesus brings God's love down from Mount Zion. Moses brings the law. Jesus fulfills the law. Moses brought the old covenant. Jesus brought a greater covenant. Listen, Moses dies for his sin on a hill. Jesus died for our sin on a hill. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, you, you can't make this up. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, right before Moses dies, he tells the Israelites, behold, God is going to send a greater prophet with a greater message and a greater covenant. And so what Moses is admitting is something that we don't like to admit. And because we don't admit it, we act more like Jews than Christians. That the greater prophet is Jesus Christ. The greater Moses is Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 9, if that's not already clear enough, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is on a mountain and, and two people show up. He transfigures and Moses and Elijah show up. And you wouldn't really understand it unless you understood the Old Testament that the reason why they are, they are there is because Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets, and they are both there to show the three stooges that are up there that, that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. 
Moses is there to validate that Jesus is who he says he is. Moses points us to the greater Moses. Moses is saying, don't look at me. Look at him. Then in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says that there is only one mediator between God and man. And his name is not Moses. His name is Jesus. So the first way in which we see this passage pointing to Jesus is that Jesus is the greater Moses. The second way, though, is that Jesus is the greater Israel. Plural, like the nation of Israel. Jesus is the greater Israel. One of the things that I found fascinating as I looked at this passage is that God, in the story of Exodus, he refers to Israel as my firstborn son. Again and again and again, God refers to Israel as his firstborn son. Now, the reason why God, scholars say, the reason why God calls Israel his firstborn son is because their job was to represent God, their father, to the pagan Gentile nations. And what we see is that they failed miserably. But Jesus, the real firstborn son, succeeds in every way that they failed. See, Israel had 12 tribes. Jesus shows up, and the first thing he does, he selects 12 disciples. Because Jesus is starting to reorient Israel around him. He is the greater Israel. Israel is in the wilderness for 40 years. They are tempted, and all they do is disobey. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days, and all he does is obey. Then Jesus, he passes through the waters but not the waters of the Red Sea, the waters of baptism. And when he comes out, God looks at him and says, behold, my son with who I am well pleased. So Jesus is also the greater Israel. And then last but not least, Jesus is the greater Passover lamb. Why is Jesus the greater Passover lamb? Well, when you look at the passage, Hebrews 11, he brings up the idea of a Passover lamb, okay? But here's what's fascinating. When you look at the Exodus story, God gives 10 plagues, right? He brings 10 plagues on Egypt. Now, the first nine plagues make a lot of sense to me because what God's doing with the first nine plagues, he, he is attacking and dethroning the gods of Israel, on the gods of Egypt, okay? So, for example, one of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped was Ra, the sun god. So what does God do? He blocks out the sun. He says, I'm stronger than your god. One of the gods that, that the Egyptians worshipped uh, was the, the god Hapai, which was the god of the Nile River. What does God do? He makes the Nile River turn into blood, which signifies that that god died. That was the blood of that god that was flowing through the Nile. They also worshipped, her name, her name was Heket, which was the goddess of frogs. What does God do? He sends frogs and says, you don't actually have the power that you think. I am the real God. Okay? Now, and that, he, he does that again and again and again with all the other nine, right? But here's what's fascinating. The 10th plague doesn't really fit that paradigm, though. See, the first nine plagues don't ever affect Israel. It says very clearly in the passage that the land of Goshen, which is where the Israelites are, they are never affected by the first nine plagues. But then with the 10th plague, God says, I'm going to send the destroyer, the, the, the angel of death, and he tells the Israelites, you better make sure you kill a lamb. Eat that lamb and put the blood on the doorpost. Because if you don't, you're going to die just like the Israelites, just like the Egyptians. If, if you don't have a substitute, you're going to die just like the bad guys. 
What that last plague teaches us, follow with me here, it teaches us, up to that point, the Israelites were like, yeah, God, you get them. The, bad, the, 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 the sinful people, the bad people are out there. The problem is out there. In the, the 10th plague, God shows up and says, no, no, no. The real enemy is not Egypt. The real problem is not Pharaoh. It's your sin. And if you don't have a substitute, I'm going to crush you too. Doesn't matter what race you are, what color you are, what gender you are, what family you're from, every person is under that 10th plague. Either you die or a lamb dies. Either you die for you or a substitute dies for you. What that first Passover lamb teaches us is that it really didn't come to deal with the greater problem. And, and what it tells us is that one day, well, God would have to send a greater Passover lamb. That's why John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, the first thing he says is, behold the lamb of God, who takes away not the Egyptians of the world, not the Romans of the world, but the sins of the world. That's why the disciples are so disappointed with Jesus when they find out he's going to die. Because they want him to pull a Moses. They want him to, to get rid of the Romans and to split the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says, no, no, brother. Your problem is way worse than the Romans. Your bondage is way worse than Pontius Pilate. Jesus is the greater Passover lamb who came to bring the real exodus we needed. Not the one we think we needed, but the one we actually needed. So what we see here in this passage is that Jesus is the greater Moses, Jesus is the greater Israel, and Jesus is the greater Passover lamb. Jesus is the greater Moses, who came to be the greater deliverer and the greater mediator of a greater covenant who provided a greater exodus from a greater enemy so that we might enter a greater promised land. Listen, to the degree that you believe that, to the degree that you meditate on that, to the degree that you behold that, to that same degree, your faith will rely on him, wait on him, and point to him. Amen? Let's pray.